0: This is a virgin media originals podcast series hello you are very welcome to the tonight show
1: more price hikes as heineken increases keg prices for publicans the rise will be passed on to customers
2: i think it could spell the death knell of a lot of pubs around the country you know that that kind of a price increase just it's not sustainable
1: after a poor US midterm showing by Trump-endorsed candidates, has Trumpism run its course?
3: No, it's not. Uh, not yet. It could be the beginning of the end. But I mean, people forget this was sort of how he was treated going into the 2016 election.
1: And I'm a politician. Get me out of here. Man Hancock leaves the Westminster political bear pit to join the celebrity jungle. You can vote in our live interactive viewers poll tonight on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote. Country's biggest brewers is hiking the price of a pint in the run up to Christmas. Heineken has written to publicans saying it's increasing the price of kegs for a range of its draft products. The rise is the equivalent of 17 cents per pint, but the cost to pub customers may be much, much higher. It comes as new figures show inflation here is now at the highest since the 1980s. The increased cost of living is mainly driven by higher energy and food costs. And separately today, Bank of Ireland also announced mortgage rate hikes for new fixed rate customers. Well, our new nightly live interactive poll allows you to get involved in The Tonight Show and tell us what you think about the big issues of today. And tonight we're asking, would an increase in the price of alcohol encourage you to drink less? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on your screen, and we'll bring you the results of that poll very shortly. I'm joined on my panel tonight by Irish Times political correspondent Harry McGee, Press Association journalist Ranya Nia, and News Talk broadcaster Kieran Cuttage. And I am also joined via Skype this evening by a local councillor and publican Joe Sheridan from Walsh's Bar in Dunmore. And Joe, it's to you. I am going to come first just to get your reaction to that news from Heineken that they are going to hike up the price of the keg. What did you think?
4: Well, livid is the word I would use, Kira. Um, I fielded over 100 phone calls from public members across Galway, uh, who people who have been loyal customers of Heineken and who have loyal customers of Heineken in their premises. What we have today is a four-fold increment in the, in the increase of a pint as to what we normally would get. That's over four times of an increment that we have to pass to our loyal customers. Uh, we're, we're seeking the CEO of Heineken to come back to the table. This this is tantamount to corporate bullying um, to increase the profit bottom lines of an international global entity over small rural you know, sole trader, family-run businesses here in the West of Ireland, and across all of Ireland. We have all got to tighten our, our belts as a, in a team effort, and we believe that Heinegan are not doing that. We have, in my own case, I have been a loyal customer of Heinegan for over 35 years. In this public house tonight, the, tap, the Heinegan taps have been disconnected. There is no Heinegan flowing from the taps out here in the bar. I don't know, will that last a day, will it last a weekend, will it last two weeks? We are dealing with a motion to the floor amongst our members tomorrow evening with the view to, I don't know what our members will come out with. Will they? What I, what I am asking is the board of Heineken Ireland come to the table to review what I see as being a disastrous move for them as an entity in their own right, but is, is probably the worst belt from our own industry that we have got in thirty years. So Joe is,
1: are you saying sorry, are you saying those taps are turned off in protest this evening?
4: I'm absolutely underlying you, telling you yes, in protest to get the entities that are that are on the board of Heineken Inc., Global and Go Ireland to come back and revisit this this devastating, this is devastating news for thousands of family-run publicans across the state so obviously, i don't really understand that i don't really know if what what these people understand what they're
1: doing uh, joe if you had to pass this on to customers because it sounds like you're saying you definitely can't absorb this how much would it add to the cost of a pint
4: Kira, i will not be passing this on to my customers in for 30, in 30 years as being a customer, and, and my brother's alone are in the public business, our publican business. I have never sought an alternative Lager provider on my counter. Tomorrow morning, I will be ringing alternative Lager providers. This is a step in the wrong direction for Heineken. I don't know how, I don't know how they came to this point, but I would, I would ask them to come to the table to revisit what is a huge mistake as a corporate, a billionaire entity in in global finance and in brewing. Okay. And what they have done is they've wiped out goodwill for over 30 years.
1: All right, Joe Sheridan, we're going to have to leave it there uh, for now. Thank you for speaking to us. I'm going to go straight to the panel. Kieran. look, for a lot of people, the cost of a pint at the moment isn't at the forefront of their minds. They're under huge financial pressure, and yet people are very sensitive to this price increase, and you can hear the rage, livid is the word Joe Sheridan used, publicans saying, we're gonna come out and protest and we're turning off our taps. Yeah, I'm
3: I'm not surprised publicans are angry because they're dealing with the same concerns that you mentioned everybody else is dealing with. You know, their costs are going up. They're dealing with inflation. All of their input costs are going up. It's costing them more to heat the premises and keep the lights on. They're also facing, you know, VAT increases. A lot of them, you know, in the hospitality sector, those increases coming early next year. They've got the fact that, You know, recessionary clouds on the horizon will always not consume our confidence and discretionary spending, including spending on alcohol and going out. Maybe alcohol people might drink it at home. So overall alcohol consumption doesn't necessarily drop, but going to the pub does. And then a lot of the others, a lot of Joe's members possibly, who are based in tourist areas, they have concerns that come next April, the government are still not going to have this large-scale modular housing up and running for the 50, 60, 70, possibly by then, 1,000 Ukrainian refugees here. And they're going to be in hotels and guest houses and B&Bs in those uh, tourist areas. And the discretionary spending uh, that goes with tourists who would be in them normally, those publicans lose out on it again.
1: Would you... I know you're a beer drinker. Would you pay an extra... 25 cent, 50 cent, I think that's the, the numbers we were looking at today. There's a bit of speculation. If that was added to the price of your pint of Heineken, or Coors Light, or Moretti, or Beamish, or Fosters, there's loads of others uh, that come under the brand, would you pay it? And would you pay it happily? Would you pay less? Would you drink less? What impact would it have?
3: Yeah, I look, I probably would pay it, uh, but then I don't drink an awful lot. I know you drink it out of a wet sock here, but like, not all of us would. <laughs> uh, no, listen, I, the joke is, I actually don't drink a huge amount of pints, so it's like, it, it wouldn't stop me going out and having a pint. Uh, people who go out maybe and have two or three pints in a week, maybe it won't. You'd probably have to be drinking an awful lot if 50 cent in a pint is going to really, really hit you in the pocket. But then there are people who like to go out and have a few pints a few nights a week, and it will hit them.
1: And do feel loyal to this particular brand. I'm just conscious, I suppose, Grosje, um, that Heineken today in their own statement said, look, we are also facing huge inflationary pressures right across our supply chain. We have tried to absorb as much as we can. We're actually not passing on all of the increases in the costs we faced, but we have to. We have to pass on some of this to, to the customer.
5: Yeah, and that is what we were told, you know, when rates of inflation were starting to be tracked, that it would hit not just the obvious things like the cost of at, at the petrol pumps and things like that, but the cost of manufacturing things on the wider scale. So it's not entirely surprising but I suppose what publicans are questioning is is the increase completely in proportion Mm. to the costs that Heineken and other companies are facing and that is the question and if they're not seeing it maybe from other suppliers then that I think it's fair a fair thing to ask the company as well they're saying that it's significant increase in cost of energy packaging and raw materials which Mm. would make sense again to to the, the cost of uh, paying energy bills and fuel to, to move things around does add to that, but is it, is is it, it transparent? Well, I'm just looking at some of the costs that they pointed
1: to uh, from Heineken Ireland. Malt costs up 120%, diesel costs up 67%. So they are facing their own pressures.
5: Yeah, exactly. And that will be across the board for other companies as well. And then as Kieran said, that the publicans themselves are facing similar increasing costs. It doesn't mean that if their costs are up, you, you um, pass on every single cost to the customer. Everybody's going to have to absorb a certain amount. But will it affect people um, from having a pint? They're already quite expensive as it is. Maybe more people will drink at home, I think. Um, they might start the night out and then drink a bit more at home because of this but I think of more an issue is the just general cost across everything so 50 cent a pint might not make a difference but it's 50 cent on top of everything else.
1: Yeah there's something about the idea of paying six euro could be approximately six euro for a pint you know you have to break a 20 euro note to get two drinks that that makes people just feel uncomfortable doesn't it Harry you just think Everything is going up here. I'm getting hit everywhere. I'm not able to catch a break.
6: Yeah, but I I actually don't think there's any price gouging in the Heineken announcement. I think there has been a genuine increase in costs. A little bit like interest rates, or petrol uh, and diesel being increased to the pumps. You wonder if Heineken is doing it, are the other brewers and alcohol companies going to follow suit because they're all facing increased costs. The war in Ukraine, for example, has put huge pressure on the price of uh, grain because there's been a shortage of grain and that has had a global impact, not just in Europe, but across uh, the northern part of Africa as well.
1: I did see one brewery in the UK saying that they would have to put the price of a pint up to £7, which would be about €8, euro, to yeah. make it sort of a commercially viable
6: business at the moment. Yeah, but look, the pubs have just been hammered. I mean, I know Dunmore very well. It's in North Galway. And if you travel across North Galway, into South Mayo, even over to West Mayo, going through the little villages, what you noticed immediately are all the pubs that have been shut down over the past 10 or 15 years as societal patterns have changed, as people have begun to drink, uh, take take takeaway that they get from supermarkets, uh, with the uh, increase in drink driving laws, uh, especially in the country, Uh, pubs have been hammered and many pubs have been closed. The pints in country pubs are considerably cheaper Already than they are in the uh, city, I disagree a little bit with uh, Kieran in terms of of would 25 cent or 50 cent per pint uh, discourage people from drinking. I think in some places it would, and it would put uh, publicans who are who are already under considerable pressure. Uh, they would push them almost to the point of having to close down.
1: Yeah, and briefly, um, Harry, the backdrop to all of this is these new inflation figures today, over 9%. And it's not the end of it, is it? No.
6: They have further to go. Absolutely, and we're seeing it across the board. We're seeing the increase in prices in dairy products. Uh, We're seeing uh, interest rates being hiked up in banks. Uh, We're seeing the price of energy increasing exponentially. People see it in their bills at home with electricity and with gas. So it is becoming almost as bad as it was during the worst period of the 1980s when inflation went into double digits. We're on the cusp of inflation going into double digits. Mm -hmm. Once it does go into double digits, we're looking at a very, very rocky and turbulent uh, 2023 uh, with the prospect of Ireland perhaps following Britain and going into recession. recession.
1: All right, look, we're going to leave that there for now and on to some good, positive news. I think the pubs might be busy in Munster this evening because it's been a huge and historic night for Munster rugby as they took on a South Africa 15 at a sold-out Park Kiev in Cork tonight. In the big game, Munster dominated play with four tries, eventually winning the game by 28 points... 14 so a night of celebrations however you choose to do it in cork i would imagine now claire brock is in cork for us tonight on this truly historic occasion for the city and province of munster claire
7: well the wind and rain didn't dampen monster spirits here Kira porky Queeve, of course for the first time ever has welcomed a whole new sporting audience and the biggest sellout crowd for a rugby match in the province Forty-one thousand. 400 fans crowded in here tonight to see Munster play South Africa, and they must have been delighted with the result 28 uh, 14 to the men in red at the end of that, and a very historic win at that. Well, to discuss this a little bit more, um, I'm joined by former Irish and Munster international Fiona Hayes and sports journalist Joanna Reardon. Uh, you're both very welcome along. Uh, to come to you to to you Fiona first a big historic occasion and Munster didn't let the fans down absolutely not what a what a night
8: for Cork rugby, especially the fans came out in their force I mean I was on telly earlier and I couldn't even hear um, what they were saying because the crowd was absolutely on the edge of their seats singing and chanting and they really got behind this team and then because of that I think this team really performed heart and character was out in that pitch all night long and you know what is exciting to, to talk about that Munster attack as well which was really really good so Graham Roundtree also came over and he was absolutely delighted with how the team went so
7: it's a positive night for Munster Ubi. Yeah because it was you know teed up is going to be a tough challenge for Munster the physicality of that South African selection but at the end of the day we really saw Munster coming through both defensively and offensively on that front Yeah and
8: look that's been the chat before the game about how, how good are this pack will Munster be able to sustain them all will they be able to stand up to them in that uh, in that scrum area and they were absolutely immense tonight they, they just literally stopped that uh, South African mall dead at times they had to use the ball which we haven't seen done very often and uh, uh, especially I suppose coming off a, a loss to Ulster as well previous weeks their, their mall came under scrutiny but they showed up here tonight and scrum was excellent as well so they really brought that physical
7: game. Joanne, tell us about this occasion. Porky queeve you know, Cork people well used to it travelling for all uh, the GAA games. But this is really historic to see rugby being played here. Um, what, how did you feel as a Cork woman uh, coming along to such a big crowd and also to a rugby match here?
9: it was technically very similar because i was rooting for the team in red against the team in green and gold so it was a very familiar surroundings <laughs> for me in that regard the unfamiliar part was that the team in red actually won um but yeah no it's incredible for cork you know i mean i'm definitely a firm believer in that we should be able to tour our teams you know around the country so every fan every boy every girl from around the country gets to see that they're heroes in action and i think that's hugely important i know they do it in spain and it's a huge success so you know we have the stadium here we have the facilities and I think hopefully this will be the the, the start of, of many games to be played here.
7: Yeah, and, and a big night as well for the city, as you, as you were saying, you know often as well we see Munster matches at Thoman Park it's all about Limerick but you know I came on the train down and at Limerick Junction a load of fans were coming on and they were coming to Cork to see this and I think that's pretty important too isn't it for the province
9: yeah like it's very exciting just to have that connectivity you know between the two counties you know I mean they're probably the two counties who put out the most in terms of actual rugby players you know into Munster and then hopefully then on into Ireland so it's great to see that camaraderie you know between the two and even I was thinking myself there was actually going to be a lot of fans from Limerick coming down and it's just great to see on a wet Thursday night you know that we had the atmosphere that we had the tries came in fortunately on both sides and everyone was happy going home so good day all around i think
7: yeah let's talk about the performance of young players because that was really quite stand out like munster have so many young players in their uh, in their pack and to see man of the match then paddy patterson uh giving very enthusiastic pochma- post-match interview <laughs> uh, i think but you know it, it, it's good to see that isn't it on this level as well playing against a huge international side. Yeah and look that's what the fans are crying out for. They want to see these young guys that are in the academy
8: getting game time. That's how they'll approve by playing games like this. I mean a, a dog bow in, in second row was outstanding again tonight. He was brilliant in the Ulster game. He's building his game gradually and he's going to get great confidence from, from that. Coombs who, who, who's probably been knocking around a long time but he's still a relatively young player and I think they really stood up in the pack. John had it as well, and I think it was like something like 12 or 14 Cork-based lads. Um, so to they really to be able to showcase their skill set here in Cork is, is huge for them. And and Paddy Patterson, I mean, the speed of rock ball he provided tonight was was amazing. But it was also his defensive qualities. He was jumping on everyone. He was killing the ball. He was really up for it. And you could see from the start. And I think he had thanked the zombie song that uh, played at the start for giving him uh, that extra incentive going out there.
7: Uh, Joanne, did the, do you think did the atmosphere at the match sort of re- reflect the significance of the, of the game here tonight? I mean, Fiona mentioned there that the fan connection is so important uh, to a team like Munster.
9: Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And I think to see them all at the end, even in the miserable weather that we have, going around thanking, thank, thanking fans, taking selfies, hanging out with the kids, doing whatever it is they needed to do, that shows that bond, you know, that's between Munster Rugby, you know, and its fans, which is, is, is so nice to see. And it's quite rare that you do see it in professional sports. So, yeah. you know, yeah, it, it, it's really good. And, um, you know, I think the fans obviously reflected that thing, you know, they gave the support back. You know, once Zombie started and Stand Up and fight came on, you know, everyone was everyone was would up and ready to go. Um, and I think, you know, it obviously got them over the line then, you know, and they seemed to be tiring kind of towards the third quarter. You know, the fans then decided to stand up, literally start singing Fields of Athenry, and got them, you know, I mean, they were going to get over the line. But I think it just was that extra push that the players needed, especially the ones coming off the bench as well, that it didn't die down as well for them
7: and also uh, that a stadium of this size can be filled 41,400 as you say in a really wet and windy um, Thursday night, says something about the interest and the passion for the sport down here. Yeah, it's it's huge down here.
8: I'm, I'm, I've I'm lived behind Toman Park my whole life. I'm a Limerick woman. I grew up there, but I, I got a job in Cork t- in 2009. So so I've been down there and I can see, you know, people talk about Musgrave Park and the difference and the, there isn't an atmosphere there. Sometimes you can see that Cork people can definitely bring an atmosphere. Uh, as I said earlier, it was very hard to even, even chat with the, the noise and that's what's that's exactly Joanne has it on the money there because those players were throwing their body on the line it was around 67 68 minutes everyone was really tired they were making those tackles and as well as that you kind of get inside the head of the referee as well and they were they were kind of booing a couple of his decisions so obviously he's going to think about the next one he, he's given and it, it works well when you have a crowd sh- roaring and shouting and they definitely were doing that here today
7: yeah you, you mentioned they're growing up just behind Helmand Park I wonder what they're thinking in, in Limerick tonight you know they have Thoman Park and suddenly Porky Cueve has come into the fray as well I mean it does obviously give options for for Munster and for Munster fans and indeed for those big international matches as well to be played in places like Cork yeah, look, it's it's the international. Match, it's brilliant to see it down here. I know
8: we we talked about it's it's still talked about that monster uh, all blacks defeat in in in, in Toman Park, and they played again in two thousand and eight, and it almost could have been a, another uh, uh, win for Ireland. So look in in Toman Park, I mean, it is it's it's the home of rugby, as people say. But Joanne is right. You need to spread it out. You need to get the fans. I I'm coaching down here. I looked around the crowd. I wanted to see young girls, young guys, seen this pitch, seen. Is it possible for me to play at home and 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 have a smile in their face? And you could see that. And it's games like this, and especially with with the win, especially you know these guys running out into the pitch with, with huge crowds there. It's an incentive for kids to to
7: want to pick up that rugby ball. Uh, Joanne, do you think the GAA is okay with all of this? I mean, we talked about this making history. Um, it is a, it's seen as being a big deal. In the end, though, there there isn't much of a fight really over over maybe you know allowing this pitch and this stadium to be used for another sport, or is there?
9: Yeah, I suppose as long as it's not Ed Sheeran interrupting a Munster <laughs> semi-final again, I think we're going to be OK in that regard. But look, I, I think we've all kind of moved on. You know, we've all accepted that, you know, it is a country that is sports mad, and we should be able to share our facilities and share our sports. You know, Parky is a little bit different in that it is a private company, so therefore it can technically do what it wants. It doesn't need the GA's approval, but you know, at the end of the day, the GA did pump a lot of funding into it, so they they will have a say overall. But I think as long as as, as long as it doesn't interfere, I really don't think there should be an issue with it. We have facilities; let's share them. Let's not close them off and leave them idle for what 360 days of the year when we could have incredible days like we had today.
7: Okay, good note to finish on. Joanne, Fiona, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, time to get out of this wind and rain. And uh, I suppose for them, join the rest of the Munster fans in celebrating a great win. But for now, uh, it's back to you, Kira.
1: Thanks, Claire. Hope you enjoy your evening. Next, more of today's big stories with our panel as the US Republican Party wonders if it has a Trump.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: Problem. Stay with us.
1: Well, a quick reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which will allow you to get involved in the show. Tonight, would an increase in the price of alcohol encourage you to drink less? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen. Now to the US. And speculation is continuing about whether Donald Trump will announce a run for the presidency after the midterm elections, which raised questions about his influence on the Republican Party. I'm joined now live from Washington by US correspondent Simon Mark. Simon, lovely to speak to you as always. We had been expecting an announcement from Donald Trump that he would run in the 2024 election, that that would happen this Tuesday. What do you think? Will he go ahead or not?
2: Well, it. It looks like it's still going ahead, uh, despite the fact that some members of Trump's inner circle have publicly said uh, that they don't think that this announcement should go ahead. They want him to wait uh, until the final results of the midterm elections are in, because they're still counting the votes in several states. And there's got to be that all important runoff election in Georgia uh, on December the 6th. So they've been arguing for the good of the party, he should abandon this plan. But the word from Mar-a-Lago today was no. No, he will not give in to the media, the corporate elites or the political elites. Everyone, according to a Trump adviser, now needs to buckle up. The invitations are being sent. People are expected to descend on Mar-a-Lago next Tuesday for that announcement. And also it's notable uh, that multiple times a day, those of us who can't get off Donald Trump's email list, even <laughs> if we wanted to, are receiving fundraising requests requests from uh, him uh, based around his plan to make that announcement that he's going to be running for the presidency again in 2024 next Tuesday. So it looks like it's going to go ahead.
1: So that's the Republicans. What about the Democrats? We've heard President Joe Biden saying he is going to run again. That's his intention. Is there full support for him within the Democratic Party?
2: Look, I think that word intention is important. It's his his intention, he says, but they haven't made a final decision as a family, and he indicated at a press conference earlier this week uh, that there will be family discussions taking place between, he said, the Thanksgiving holiday at the end of this month uh, and the Christmas and New Year period, with a possible announcement being made uh, early next year. Look, there's no question that the midterm election results, uh, as they've come in, uh, have rekindled uh, his... His desire to seek a second term in the Oval Office because the Democrats have not suffered anything like the kind of setback that many of them feared, and he's really bucked the historical uh, precedents here. He hasn't suffered anywhere near the kind of losses that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama uh, suffered when they were presidents, and they went on to enjoy a second term in office. But he's already the oldest sitting American president. He will be turning 80 nine days from now, and that worries especially younger grassroots Democrats who are still craving generational change. And one group of uh, left-wing Democrats up in New York today uh, launched a website, Joe Don't Run, it's called, uh, and it's encouraging him to abandon any thoughts about seeking another term in the White House and handing uh, the opportunity over uh, to a younger generation, and they obviously hope a more left-wing generation of Democrats.
1: Joe, don't run. The message is pretty clear. Uh, Simon Marks, we have to leave it there. I want to go to my panel now, and thank you, as always. Uh, Joe, don't run, and the New York Post, a paper that was so supportive of Trump, as were so many of Murdoch's publications last time round, completely turning on him, Uh, the front page. I think we can show people at home the front page. I mean, it really really ridiculed him, didn't it? What significance does that have? I
5: suppose the... The what it says, in fact, emphatically, is that well, they're not listening to Donald Trump himself, who said that if they don't, if we don't win big, I shouldn't be blamed at all. But if they do well, I should get the credit for it. But uh, it it does signal that and um, that kind of tr- Trump charisma, that kind of captured voters before, mightn't be working either for other candidates or mightn't still be with them. Even though he did have this terrible, uh, incredible pull with voters, Trump, it, it's he's slightly damaged in the sense that he has spent time in office and that takes the gloss off, off of any candidate yeah. and it will not be a smoother run if if he does uh, intend uh, to run again because he will have um pings for voters to hold against him i rem- i was listening to a swing voter say before the midterms that he voted for Donald Trump in 2016 but in 2020 he voted or in 20 20 he uh voted for Biden because Trump said he would cleared the swamp, and he didn't do that. So, pe- so voters will who will decide, or the swing voters in the middle, and they will ho- think about what Donald Trump has done in his term of office, and and will hold it against him if he does run again.
1: The, the sort of the change, that that pivot away from supporting Trump, a lot of that seems to have come really because the candidates that he endorsed failed to do well in this mm-hmm. election. Is it fair, do you think, to blame him for the? Rep- failings of the Republican Party in the Uh, midterms. Because he does seem to be shouldering a lot of that blame. Yeah,
3: look, it's it's probably hard to know. We, um, this far away, we think of it as a rerun of a presidential election, when actually there's local issues at play in states that you doesn't get any coverage here. So abortion might be a much bigger issue in one state than another. There'll be issues around who's taking over, you know, running the school system in one state that will lead that will bleed into the the, the Senate or the congressional seats as well. And that there's are, no real understanding of no, the we don't. Do how we, we, we view it all through be. the prism of Biden versus Trump, Republican versus Democrat. Now, the, the narrative as well that, you know, his candidates have all failed and this is kind of the end of Trumpism, like, one of them is still in the race, Herschel Walker in Georgia, which Simon mentioned, that's the December 6th runoff. If He, he is absolutely Trump's guy. Like, Trump has... Foursquare behind this fella. If he wins, and he could very well win that seat, then suddenly the narrative changes because suddenly they've not only taken over Congress, not by as much as they thought, but they've done it, they've taken over the Senate as well. It wasn't necessarily a red wave, but maybe the red ripple was a little bit disparaging as well. They've actually done what they achieved and Donald Trump will absolutely claim victory on the 7th of December if that happens.
1: (laughs) Uh, Should Biden drop out if Trump does, do you think? Should he run again?
6: Well, uh, I don't think it's binary. I don't think... I think Biden's decision will have to be done uh, irrespective of what Trump's intentions are, because you have to be able to run according to your own lights rather than according to what your opponent is But we probably think he'd be doing...
1: better served, wouldn't we, if Trump
6: well, I mean, ran? We have a man who's nearing 80. Uh, at the end of his second term, he will be 86. Uh, Trump himself is no spring chicken. We're kind of going back to yeah. China of the 1970s and these kind of octogenarian kind of politbureaus. Uh, so I think age might be a little bit of a factor for 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 Biden uh, and that will right. play, play high in his consideration.
1: Alright, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but next are poll results and some more of the big stories that you may have missed this week. Do stay with us. back. Now, back to our nightly interactive poll. And tonight's question was, would a hike in alcohol prices encourage you to drink less? Well, the result of that poll was a majority of 58% saying that they wouldn't Drink less, and forty-two percent saying yes, they would. So I think—is that what you were saying, Kieran Cuddy? People will absorb well, the I price, they're willing to. Keep to.
3: Store, but I think it is what I was saying, Harry. But anyway, well, it anyway. About the viewers of this program. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, we've had disparaging remarks about the presenter of this program, and now the viewers of this program, and I won't have it. So let's uh, move on to some domestic politics this week, Harry. We now have a date: Leo Bradford will become T-shirt on the seventeenth of December. Are you? expecting a kind of a shift in how this coalition operates come the new year like will the focus change will we start to see parties thinking about the general election
6: oh and how will that play out yeah, yeah well the general election i think won't be until 2025 unless something catastrophic happens and things that are catastrophic often happen in politics i think you'll see a a a marked change of emphasis i mean Fine gael will be the lead party in government so they will be Uh, trying to bring their influence to bear in terms of the outlook and philosophy of the government. And already we've seen uh, straws in the wind in relation to pronouncements by Leo Varadkar Mm. Varadkar and others in relation to housing, for example. So do you think
1: we'll see a different Leo this time around?
6: Well, he's more experienced. Mm. I I think he has a particular uh, agenda. I think there are things that he wants to do. Uh, Micheál Martin had his shared Ireland project I think there will probably be a little bit less emphasis on that. And Leo will probably be looking, a little Leo Varadkar will probably be looking at, at, at enterprise, uh, at, at uh, business, at kind of the Fine Gael type uh, policies uh, that are familiar to us. He's steering Fine Gael into a particular space. Mm. The, the, the era of a catch all party in Ireland is almost in the past. So each of the, party has to, each of the parties have to find their own space and their own niche. And I think that's the direction that he very much wants to lead Fine Gael into. There'll be changes of portfolio as well. I think that Michael Martin will become Minister for Foreign Affairs. Uh, that will mean that a Simon Coveney will have to get a, a portfolio. Maybe he'll move to enterprise. Maybe he'll move to something else. I think Fianna Fáil will have to cede uh, one of the senior ministries. I think it could be it could be Agriculture. Uh, where Charlie McConlogue is at present. And there might be one or two changes in personnel within Fianna Fáil as well. But Daryl O'Brien, we've been told, is going to be staying put, yeah.
1: And Fianna Fáil will keep health. Um, You said, you know, Leo Radker is sort of moving the party into a very particular place, but today he seemed to want to take some Fianna Fáil voters with him. He was speaking to the End podcast, uh, Gráinne, and talking about the idea of creating a transfer pact for the next election. Now, we saw that in the last election with the lefts. At wing parties transfer left. What do you think of this idea? Why is he talking about it now? Because
5: he he wouldn't commit to it a couple of months ago, and he was asked about it. Yeah, and he said if the coalition is going as well as it currently has, which I think that that would be something he'd be interested in, which I think says a lot about how well the coalition is going between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Anyway, um, I think it it suggests. I mean, I was I think in the context of a talk about Sinn Féin being the next in government, and if you are Winning votes from the other parties, um, you've more of a chance of mm. lessening a Sinn Féin majority. I suppose is is one of the things. The other thing I th- I think is,
1: and he sort of has to appeal, doesn't he, to finno voters? Like, where else would they but get I, transfers? I, I
5: think everybody's quite surprised. Well, there's a there's quite surprised. Surprise at how well Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have gotten on. There's been wranglings in the background, but there's nothing. I mean, the main disagreements have been between the Greens and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, really. Like, um, with the odd, you know, uh, Joe McHugh lost the whip over something quite unique to his constituency area, but by and large, it has been about. Finnefall and Finnebel working quite well together. Pastor Even Johnny you some... and, and Michael McGrath are getting on so well together, it's quite bizarre, really, how uh, uh, collegiate they are. Um, but I think Leo Varadkar will create uh, a, a kind of a new. Um, I suppose atmosphere as leader. We saw it in the doll today. There were fiery exchanges. I think he's going to be bolder and brasher than he was the first time around. He's always been a leader to speak his mind, mm. and we're going to see a lot more of that All when right. he becomes Taoiseach for the second time.
1: Uh, I want to move on to Cap here. On. the one thing that really I think struck me this week is how little coverage mm. Cap has received. What do you make of that and what do you think is going to be achieved at it?
3: I suspect very little will be achieved at it, uh, or what will be achieved will, will in itself achieve very little. Because, uh, you know, you're always accused of water battery when you bring this up, but it, it, it is a legitimate criticism to say there's very little they can do when the people you need to be in the room to maintain the planet's temperatures at a safe rate Uh, at a safe uh, uh, setting, or however you want to describe it, sorry, um, are not there. China's not there. China's not there. India's not not there. there. Australia's not there. North America, effectively, is not there. Russia's not there for its own reasons. Um, So they're all not in the room, and there's very little that everybody else can do about the warming of the planet without them in the room. And, like, that's not to absolve ourselves of any blame either. Like, Micheál Martin gave a great speech over there, and he talks about how we've, like... Uh, uh, we've committed ourselves to these climate targets and not only have we committed ourselves to them, uh, you know, ethically and morally, we've enshrined it in law, which actually doesn't mean anything. And, and I know the lads, am sure the lads her- ask this all the time of politicians, and the best answer you can get and say, what does that actually mean? And trying to know, they say, well, it means we have to meet them. Well, what if we don't meet them? Well, no, we have to meet them because we've enshrined them in law. Now, you ask any parent watching this show of a child with additional needs about what is enshrined in the disability acts in terms of the commitment that government is meant to make to those children and the timelines that they're meant to be assessed for needs and that services are meant to be provided for them. It's never met. I don't think it has ever been met since the disability act. Is it 2005 the date on that act, the disability act? So it's never met. So the fact that these climate targets are enshrined in law doesn't mean anything. There's not a hope in hell,
6: we'll hit them. No sanction. I mean, there'll be no sanction if they fail to meet the targets, and they will fail to meet the targets. I mean, the targets are highly aspirational. Yeah.
1: I mean, no sanction, but there's very serious consequences.
6: Of course there are. And I mean, I mean, he gave a great speech this year, but so many politicians have given so many great speeches at COP over the years. Uh, uh, but the problem is delivery, and delivery just never happens. I was and ac-
1: targets being missed, and we've seen
6: um, that. I was at COP in 2009, and the uh, Obama was there. They tried to do a big deal there. The Chinese blocked it. And then the, the next big cop really was Paris in 2015, where, where the That's Paris support. Accord was. And all of the countries came together and an agreement was reached uh, to uh, try to contain uh, global temperature to two degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels. But the problem is that little has been done since then. And it's like it's a huge problem to, to, to affect it, to get that change done. Takes so much money, so much funding, so much effort, so much societal change, even here in Ireland, we're a small country, to, to achieve the 51%, we're going to have to have a massive upheaval and transformation of our society. Mm-hmm. And people are, not prepared, to people are not prepared to do it yet, but one day they might have to be prepared to do it because there is no other choice. But the difficulty is, by that time, it might be too late.
1: OK, I want to move on to uh, Russia and their announcement today that they were going to withdraw from Kherson. There have been questions... Over their motivations, Ronya, haven't
5: there? There's, they've announced that they're withdrawing from Kherson, and there's questions about whether they will. First of all, and then if it's a trap, I suppose, for um, Ukrainians retaking the city. But it it, 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 as time goes on, it does seem to be um, at face value exactly what's happening. People on the ground are saying that there aren't a lot of troops in in the strongholds of the city, uh, and it, all the evidence is pointing to that it is what is happening, but there are repercussions for every slight step the Ukrainians make um, militarily. There is a, a random strike of, of missiles on a city or a, a, a train station is targeted or anything like that. So it's it's hard to I'd be reluctant to make too big of a, a strategic win of this.
1: All right, I want to move on to a story closer to home. And it's incredible sometimes, I think, hearing the stories that really grab people's attention. This one is the crib, the Christmas crib outside um, the Lord Mayor's house in Dublin and whether or not it should have live animals. Now, the Lord Mayor is determined and seems to be sticking to her guns on this. There will be no live animals. Uh, Were you surprised at the reaction to this
3: story? Uh, I wasn't surprised at the reaction, actually. I thought this was the You're exact... not surprised by this anything this, anymore. This is the exact type <laughs> of thing that people will lose their mind over, I thought. This is the type As of story thought, your programme Yes, loves. we went to town on it. <laughs> um, I personally, I didn't like the animals in the crib uh, in the middle of town, so close to like what is a busy thoroughfare, and there are trams, and there are buses, and there are taxis, and there's lots of people. I never, I was never really a huge fan of it. You don't necessarily need to get rid of them. There is acres and acres of green space about 200 meters away. I'm not sure why you couldn't have a much bigger installation and stick it into Stephen's Green if you wanted to have animals somewhere in the city. Well, I think they are talking, aren't they, they about an
1: alternative now. Mm. Nativity scene that has live animals somewhere else It just won't be in front of the mansion house.
6: Yeah, I, I, I think um, uh, Caroline Conroy really has uh, slight difficulty in that she said that she was going to end it mm. and there was a very negative uh, reaction and a lot of people do like the crib and like the idea of having live animals. Uh, her difficulty was the alternative that she was proposing looked to be kind of fairly thin. Uh, you know, She, was she saying promised
1: ex- it was going to be bigger than, and better, that, didn't
6: she? Well, if it isn't... Um, she, that that's what her lord mayorship will be remembered as. She'll be remembered as the lord mayor who got rid of the live crib. So she promised that it would be bigger and better. So there's an awful lot of pressure on her to deliver in in relation to that.
1: You'll be down there checking it out.
6: Well, I won't be. I think it's a bit of a distraction. But I I, I think that a lot of people feel that you know if it wasn't broke, there was no need to to uh, fix it. And if she was coming up an alternative, I, I, I'm not sure if she had fully thought through the implications of the decision that she was making. Okay,
1: just very briefly Gronya, I want to just uh, reference the interview that the actress Jennifer Anderson gave to Allure magazine. We wouldn't normally talk about those uh, interviews but she did make comments actually, didn't she? Quite personal comments about why she has not had children, something that she has been questioned about for years and years and years and she has now spoken out and said that she was actually dealing with uh, infertility issues all the time. It's, yeah. it's quite incredible that women still have to come out and answer these questions.
5: Well, yeah, I think because Jennifer Aniston is one of those well-known celebrities that this, that society and I suppose a lot of international media had, had questioned and put pressure on her and used her as a kind of a fodder for stories about why she wasn't having kids. And then she's come out and said, well, during all of that, I was actually trying to have children and it was a very difficult time and it didn't happen and that's where I'm at now i think it just showed how cruel how cruelly she was treated and um to put her under that extra pressure when she was dealing yeah, with that in her society personal
1: life and puts, trying to keep it private society puts
5: enough do. pressure on people to have kids when it it might not suit them and to get married and to and to couple up and things like that without you know, the full glare of the, the media being down on you almost every day and being asked in interviews about it, I'm sure, when she was promoting every TV show and movie she did. So I would think it just is a lesson for people to be a more compassionate not when dealing not just with celebrities, but uh, with the yeah. people in their lives as well. And perhaps put that question to bed once and for all. OK, I just want to move on to a story
1: which has generated so many newspaper articles and so many headlines this week, and that is Matt Hancock, former health minister in the UK, joining I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out Of Here. Harry, what do you make of his decision to join that? Well,
6: it must be easier for him than the moment after Rishi Sunak was uh, elected as leader of the Tory party. He came out and then he was greeted by a mob of his own Conservative uh, uh, MPs and he completely ghosted Matt Hancock and ignored him completely. So we knew that his career as a minister in Westminster was over for now. So this is the alternative. Um, it's funny yeah, Because these... he has
1: been criticised a lot for going into this. Like, what is yeah. a politician doing going into a reality programme that's called I'm a Celebrity?
6: Yeah, but Ed Balls went into um, Celebrity Come Dancing, and that actually transformed his public image. He went from somebody who was seen as gruff and kind of superior and a little bit diffident, to be somebody who became almost a national treasure, so, so he's th- entitled to do this. I think I think he's as entitled as anybody else to do it. Um, it wouldn't be my cup of crawly Maggoty tea, but um, <laughs> you I, haven't
1: I, been watching every single night. No,
6: it's not my. I don't really like it that much. I mean, seeing somebody inverted in a in a in a, in a vat of kangaroo pee uh, eating kind of crustaceans would not be my idea of fun TV. To be
3: honest with well,
1: you, I, I really don't understand that whatsoever. <laughs> Have you been watching it?
3: Uh, I, see, I actually saw uh, Will Hancock. you watch it now that he's in it? Uh, I might watch bits of it. It might be like soaps where I say I don't watch it, but it's, somehow I happen to be in the room when it's <laughs> on all the time. I don't know how this keeps happening. Um, so I actually saw it last night when he went in. They... They genuinely looked appalled, a lot of them, that he was there. Um, you know, quite a few. They didn't seem to much support for him. Now, just before we came on air today, we see he won 11 stars in whatever challenge he happened to be doing, half upside down in a vat of kangaroo pee, is Harry But just to be
1: clear, you don't
3: watch it. Uh, no, That's I right. absolutely no. <laughs> do not watch it. Like, I don't watch Emmerdale. Yeah. Full stop.
1: Will he rehabilitate his image, <laughs> do you think?
5: That's what he's there for, obviously. I doubt it. Um, it's I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, he was a minister in charge of the, of the pandemic and the UK didn't handle it particularly well. But, I mean, it's as good a chance as any he has to, to reform his image, I suppose. All right, we'll leave it there.
1: And my thanks to the viewers at home and to our guests for watching. That's it from us. Good night.